0: So as we continue to walk through the Gospel of Luke, and we're uh, now in the actually I'm gonna, in the uh, in Holy Week uh, during the Passion, and um, Jesus was just betrayed to the authorities by Judas. So we'll read this together, and then we'll talk about it uh, briefly here, and then uh, return to our worship. Then seizing him, Jesus, they led him away. And took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. Actually, I'm just going to stop right there just because it was running through my head a little bit, uh, since I was working on this, and we were singing that, that song, "I need to be where You Are." Peter is often, um, you know, uh, lambasted, as it were, for denying Jesus three times, which is fair enough. Um, however, it's worth noting. That Peter was the one who had the bravery, or the courage, or the desperation, or whatever you want to call it, to actually follow uh, Jesus to his place of trial, to the house of the high priest, where that was all going to unfold, and that he he felt so compelled to be where you are, as we were singing, to be where Jesus is, that he couldn't he couldn't scatter like the rest of the disciples. He couldn't run, and so he he followed, even though he was in great fear, as we shall see. But still, nevertheless, um, I think he. I don't know if I would have that kind of courage. T- t- keep in mind what's going on here. I mean, the, there's nothing more brutal than torture and execution at the hands of the Romans. There's nothing more terrifying to people at that time. Um, we use the words so often, they get a little, we get a little immune to them, words like crucifixion. But this was, you know, th- this was the apex of, of what the Romans could do to you, and he was in danger of it at this time. Uh, Jesus and the rest of the disciples. So it says something about Peter that that he is following, granted at a distance, but he's still, he's taking a risk, as we shall see, and the risk becomes quite real. And when some there kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, the courtyard in the middle of the house, so if you're a wealthy individual at that time and you owned a house, often the house, the middle of the house would be at the courtyard uh, where, where big meetings and this sort of thing would take place. So he's, he's in the high priest's home in the middle of the courtyard. significant time is passing here, another person asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. So, we all know the story. I mean, Peter denies Jesus three times, and he doesn't do it quickly, all at once. There were these you know, these long periods of time between the denials. And he he knew, or he had in his mind somewhere, subconsciously, that Jesus had predicted that this would happen, that he would deny him. He didn't really recall it. And there's a sense when somebody tells you something you don't believe, that you think is not true, you don't really retain it very well, right? And Jesus told him that you're going to deny me at a time when Peter thought, I'm rock solid. In fact, I'm Peter. <laughs> I am the rock. and And he didn't believe it. And so he didn't it didn't come to his mind when he plus he was under an incredible amount of anxiety and stress. But nevertheless, he didn't believe it. But whatever passed through his mind after each denial, or during each denial, the truth came out. The truth being, and you know, I, I don't say this in a condemning way, I don't hear it in a condemning way, but the truth being that Peter at this point cared more for his own life than he did for Christ. That's the truth that came out of each denial. His self-protectiveness was stronger than his, than his love for God in, in a very direct way. And I, again, I don't say that pejoratively. None of us really know, until we're in those kinds of situations, exactly how we will respond. I mean, people always say, um, you know, in, in wartime, you can't predict uh, those people whose courage will break and those who will be strong on the basis of their personality or the things they say. It's, it is something of a surprise, sometimes even to the very person whose courage stays and the person whose courage fails. So I I don't know. I've not been put in a situation even remotely similar to this where someone has said to me, your faith or your life. Uh, Some people do. Today, someone will. Um, And it's good for us to reflect on that and to think about it in a way that Peter hadn't because he didn't believe Jesus. But if, if Jesus said to me, Seth, in a time of trial, you will deny me three times for fear of your life, I'd surely believe him because, you know, I don't know how strong my courage is. I like to think it's tremendous, which probably means it's not. (laughs) But the truth is, his self-protectiveness was stronger than his love for God. You may be the same, I may be the same, or maybe not. Maybe we'd surprise ourselves. I don't know. But there was forgiveness for Peter. I hope that's not a spoiler. There was, even as he denied Jesus three times, he was reinstated three times, uh, by Jesus. There was grace in that moment. Um, I think I'll touch on this briefly um, before I get in. Um, There there is one thing that, that this points up that I think is really important about us as a church, I mean the body of Christ as a whole throughout the world, I don't mean Cornerstone, I mean the church as a whole, There's something here theologically that I think we need to pay attention to. There's a lot of anxiety sometimes in certain traditions and certain churches uh, about um, apostasy, heresy, leaving the faith. Does that that make sense? Uh, Someone who just loses their faith or whatever, you know, regarding salvation, redemption, all these kinds of things. And in fact, this was a a battle within the, the early church, a literal battle. There was a war Uh, fought over this in North Africa, in point of fact, um, regarding the Donatists. And the core of the debate, um, when a Roman emperor brought persecution to the church, some people's courage failed them. And one of the things that the Roman emperor would require is that you would hand over your scripture, you'd hand over your Bible as a sign of, and they would burn it, of course, as a sign of losing your faith. And those people were called traditores, and traditore means to hand over. Um, and so that's where we get the word traitor from. And so they would hand over their Bibles, and the Bibles would be burned, and they'd become known as traditores. Well, when the persecution led up, and, and Diocletian or whoever, uh, the Christians were no longer being persecuted, uh, there, those people were, some were held in great disdain, and they, many of them wanted to come back to the church and wanted to be uh, sort of reinstated, as it were, Uh, were repentant of the fact that they had failed in in that moment, their courage had failed. And by the way, the the, uh, penalty for not handing over your scriptures, you might imagine, was death, and usually not a quick death. So one can understand. So this created this battle. And the Donatists uh, said, in essence, no, if you've denied Christ, you're done. You're no longer part of the church. You cannot give communion. You cannot receive communion. you're, You're finished. That's it. And that's the end of the story. And there's a whole series of theological presuppositions that go with that, and there's a whole battle uh, that went with that. And Saint Augustine was one of the ones who said, "No, that's too. That's not. That's not correct." And anyway, there's a whole history we don't have time to go into there. Um, but my point being, this passage, along with the reinstatement of, of Peter, to me is, makes a theological point that they're just like you know, seventy times, seventy times to so forgive you know, whatever. There's always a road back to Christ, uh, denying Christ as Peter did here three times, uh, is not the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that is the unforgivable sin or these things. You know the, I think it's important that we, we take um, grace to be the core of the church, mercy and forgiveness. Um, so you know that, that may not be an issue in the sense of fighting wars about it as they did uh, centuries ago, but it, it should be there's something in our hearts that we tend to be suspicious of people if they, you know, are are you the real deal? Are you the real thing? Are are you really coming back to Christ? And we should have the humility and the grace and such just to say that's not our call. (laughs) Everyone's soul is between them and God, not between you and them and God, or even between their pastor and them and God. Everyone's soul and grace and forgiveness is between them and God. Does that make sense? So I, I could go on about that, but to me that's an important aspect of the faith, uh, that that sense of, of the grace, and there be no apostasy, uh, or no, the door's always open, <laughs> uh, as, as far as the church is concerned. Interestingly enough, I, I, I've gone on too long already, but heresy does tend to breed heresy. Uh, one of the things that was Intriguing was that it was actually the war with the Donatists, the strict legalism of if you mess up, then you can't come back, that started the, the road of St. Augustine and others, created this theory uh, or this, um, this theology of, of how it's okay to kill other Christians uh, on the basis of warped theology, Does that make sense. So if your theology, I believe, is so heretical, so bad, then I can kill you. I can use force against you. That's when this started. For centuries, the Christian Church eschewed the sword. There was no sword in the church. We just—that was not for us. And it was here, with the Donatists, in this moment, that Christians started taking up arms against one another and forcing. And, and Saint Augustine had this thing about, um, you know, in Luke 15, where the the um, the man sends out invitations to the banquet, to the mansion, and they say, no, 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 we don't want to go. And there's this verse, well then go out into the highways and byways and compel people to come in. And he used that as as a as a theological justification for saying we can use force to compel people to use right theology or kill them if they don't. So like I said, heresy tends to breed heresy. When you get legalistic and I'm a big fan of St. Augustine, by the way. I, I I love his book Confessions. I think he was a man of God. He got this, in my view, wrong. That's a big thing to get wrong, in my opinion. Um, in fact, we just saw recently in the, in the last passage, uh, Jesus saying, we're not to take the sword. But anyway, so that's a, a bit of church history and a bit about the, the redemption of Peter and the importance of our openness to redemption in all instances. So that's not the main thing I want to talk about, and I'm going I'm, I'm to hurry because I, I want to hear more music. <laughs> I'm going to be candid, but... Um, let me skip this too so with, a lot, with Peter's denial this really did feel like a Holy Spirit moment to me and I don't, I don't say this in, in all my sermons as you know as most of you know but I felt like the, the second I read Peter's denial in, in this passage I felt like God said pay attention to this and it just jumped out at me and so I, I thought okay well this has got to be in some of my commentary I have a number of commentaries on Luke written by people uh, much smarter than me and I didn't find it in any of their commentaries. I couldn't find it. I Googled it and said, well, maybe some pastor has preached on it this way before, and I couldn't <laughs> find that either. So, I, you know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. But this is what I, I feel like God spoke to me through. And so, this is how, um, how I'm interpreting this particular passage. G, uh, Peter doesn't really deny Jesus three times, although, in a sense, he does. But if you, if you read it very carefully, he actually does something a little different. that speaks more directly to the nature of falling away from Christ, in my view. So, let's look through this, these three denials. Denial one. The first denial is of Christ. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked close to him and said, This man was with him, him being Jesus, of course. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. That's the denial of Christ. And I think that's... You know, when it comes to losing faith, and I've seen more people than I care to think of who have lost their faith, oftentimes there is, not always, but often there is this sense of, I don't know him. He's distant. Jesus is not on my side. He's not there when I need him. He didn't take away that thorn in my flesh. He he wasn't there when I had this struggle. He's not, some, some... something like, I don't really know who Jesus is. Maybe he's not even real. Maybe he's, maybe I've just made this up in my mind and the distance grows and the relationship gradually sunders. I mean, it can happen all at once, but in my experience, it happens gradually and slowly over the course of time. But in your heart, you're saying, I don't know him. I don't really know him. What the, what the pastor is saying doesn't resonate with me or my, the way my community treats me doesn't strike me as particularly Christ-like, maybe it's all just a, I mean, any number of things, but for whatever reason, gradually this gulf grows. So imagine that's you in the church, you know, sitting there feeling this growing distance between you and Jesus. And what's the second thing that tends to happen? Denial too. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Now this isn't a denial of Christ. This is a denial of his community. So the first thing was Jesus, and the second thing was community. He says, you are one of them. You're one of the disciples of Christ. You're part of this community. Man, I am not. So the second disciple... Thank you, guys. That was very quietly done. <laughs> Remarkable. Um, the second denial is the denial of community. And I see that, too. That as people's experience of Christ gets... Wide, as, as they feel farther and farther from Jesus... The community becomes more alien to them, and and what's happening in the community becomes more alien to them. They have more suspicion of what's happening in the community, and they start to that that alienation from Christ starts to become an alienation uh, from from one another. And lastly, himself. About an hour later, someone else says, "Certainly, this fellow's with him, because he is a Galilean." I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not even from Galilee. And in fact, in, in Matthew's gospel, he says it with an oath, with a curse, or you know, however you want to uh, interpret that particular word. But he very strongly, "That's not me." So the third denial isn't about Jesus or his community it's about himself and that is really the core of. and that's what I felt like jumped out at me when I when I read this passage it was like because I you know as a, as a preacher I was looking I was like okay so he denies Jesus three times how exactly does he say it and I was like well really the first time is the only time he really denies Jesus the second time he denies being part of the community and the third time he's saying that's not even me and I think that is a comprehensive illustration of what happens as we fall away from Christ, because the truth is that we find ourselves in Christ, who we really are, that God, who knit you together in your mother's womb, knows better than you who you really are and knows how to continue that formation. Our formation doesn't end when we're born, it just continues, the molding of uh, how Christ molds you into who he would have you be, but when you say to Christ and subsequently to His community, and to the church, you say, I don't know you, and I have no part of you, and that gulf grows. Then you start to become alienated from yourself. And boy, do I see that too. I see that people get away from the person who I thought they were, or the person who I hoped they were, maybe, is a better... Because Christians, of course, could disappoint you too. <laughs> it's not that... Well, anyway, but you know, over the course of years, if someone is just pushing away against that God of love, that will they will start to unravel. We come into this world, and immediately, immediately sin starts to pull up the threads of who you are. Immediately sin starts to undo you and make you into something that you're not meant to be, someone who's a slave to sin, or a slave to your pride, a slave to your own desires, whatever it may be. And when we come to Christ, he starts to knit that all back together. Granted, it's a process, but it's a real process. And he will knit you back together. And you become who you really are. I love that, that verse in, in Luke uh, chapter 15, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, which I preached on not terribly long ago. Well, I was over here. <coughs> right but do you guys remember? You're not going to remember. But do you guys remember the, the key verse with the prodigal son, where everything shifts for him? You remember. I'll be darned. <laughs> Gold star. He came to himself. In that, in that Greek verse, that, that he, it, it almost means literally he arrived at himself. And suddenly, the prodigal son who's feeding pigs in, in the slop yard realizes, this isn't who I am. Not really. Over there is my father who knows who I am, knows me better than anybody else. That's who I am. And that's where I belong. And all I have to do is accept his love. And that's, to me, this, I'm not even a Galilean, is, is a metaphor, if you will of just pushing against even who you are because you don't want to be associated with Christ. And, that, and, and the, the depth of that is, well, there's no end to it. Um, eventually you'll just become something um, unrecognizable as a human being. Likewise, positively, those who continue to search for a relationship with God and those who hand over their sins to Christ every day become more and more who they're meant to be. And, and to me, that's, that's, uh, uh, that's just as much a part of the good news as forgiveness from sin. Well, they're all tied together. But When you deny Christ, you will deny the church, and then eventually you will find yourself denying yourself. That's not who I am. I'm not a Galilean. Truth is the province of God. And lies are the province of Satan. And it won't be terribly long for you're telling lies to yourself about why you do this thing or why you do that thing or why you don't have to be that person. And they're all lies. Finding Christ is becoming yourself. The pressure on, as I said before, the pressure that's on Peter here, and I'll end with this, um, is very real. And very powerful. And most of us, I hope, never have to go through this kind of pressure. You know, either deny me or die. But there are people, as we know, who are going through that even today. But there is a ratcheting up of pressure, of societal pressure and cultural pressure in our communities, in our universities, in our schools, in in our, in our nation, in, in the United States of America. There's a ratcheting up of social pressure to deny Christ. It's still very... It's minimal compared to other places you could be or other places you could go. But it's real. And I think we, we always need to have the sense or always need to have before us the knowledge that God calls us to lay down our life. It probably won't be asked of you unless you go somewhere overseas where it could be. But if we hold that in our heart as, you know what, Jesus, I am with you till, till death, till the end, then these cultural pressures Are as nothing, like pricks on the skin, as it were, even though in the moment they might feel quite real. And I think we need to talk more about that as a church as the years go by. I intend to talk more about it as a pastor, about how we we stay faithful to God in a culture that is becoming more godless without setting up this sense of antagonism, or war, as I mentioned earlier, against people who God loves, people who he would have us reach out to with love and with service. An, it has to be an ongoing conversation, or it becomes the wrong kind of battle. It becomes a battle against flesh and blood. Um, well, a book I read recently, um, I don't necessarily agree with everything in it, uh, but it spoke to this battle that Peter has, and the battle some of you have in your workplaces, and in, in your culture, and your families with following Christ. Uh, it's this book called The Benedict Option uh, by Rod Dreher. It's a, called a uh, subtitled A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. And he uses the St. Benedict's Rule, which is a rule for monastics in the 5th century AD, I believe, uh, as kind of a template for a, way, a new way to think about being Christian in a world that's increasingly non-Christian. And how to, to, um, how to be a light in the nation, and how to retain your saltiness, as Jean-René sang earlier. That, that's something we have to think about. It's something we have to do. It can't be something we just assume we are. And as the culture changes, we need to change too. Uh, as to how how we do these things. And so I I commend this book to you. Again, I don't agree with everything in it. You probably won't agree with everything in it. It's the rare book that I do agree with everything. But at least it gets the conversation going and and to think about what it means. Um, So uh, just some thoughts. Let's pray, go to communion, and then worship.